Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 90. If you think about all kind of like, you know, these best innovations, it's really a matter of of learning the space from scratch, being able to think outside the box about how that kind of like space may have a better solution available for it, and then crafting that. Welcome to a real-world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. How's it going, everybody? I am Jay Scott here again this second or third week of the new year. This new year is flying by. I'm glad you're joining us again. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Mrs. Carol Scott. How's it going today, Carol Scott? Things are so well. I'm loving that we're into 2021 and our family themes this year are health, simplicity, and time affluence. And we've got that going on in a lot of aspects of our family. And most specifically, I'm so proud of us for embarking upon the Super Scott 66, which is 66 days of six different activities we're making sure we do together as a family to achieve those themes each and every day. So very excited to be here and can't wait for a great show again today. Yeah, yeah. The 66 Super Scott has me drinking a gallon of water a day and (laughs) walking a whole lot and biking a whole lot and eating healthy. And while I am going to be thrilled with the results, I'm a little crabby today because it's now several days of eating healthy and I'm going through sugar withdrawal. All right. Come on. Let's be positive. Let's get this show going. Okay. Let's talk about the good things. And one of the good things is this show today. We have actually a really fun show. I I love today's conversation. Our guest today is a gentleman. He's actually a former colleague of mine. We worked together at eBay many years ago and have been in touch for several years. And his name is Ben Foster. And he is the chief product officer at a company called Whoop. He is the founder of a product management advisory practice called Prodify, and he is the co-author of an amazing book that was just released a few months ago called Build What Matters. Long story short, Ben is an expert on products, and today we talk all about products and how companies who create products can do it better and more successfully. Now, even if you don't have a product company, you're going to love this episode, and you're probably going to get a ton out of it. We talk all about what makes great products and what makes not so 
great products. And we spend time talking about some of the products we love and why those great products are so awesome and what you can be doing to build awesome products just like some of those products that we love. Now, for you entrepreneurs who actually create products or have a product company or want to create a product company. We also talk about how to improve our product businesses, including things like why is the biggest mistake most product entrepreneurs make waiting too long to release their product and why delivering a product that makes your customers that your customers aren't thrilled with is actually a great thing for long-term success for your business. Ben tells us the three core things product entrepreneurs need to focus on to be successful building their companies. And the overall theme of today's show is simply how how we as entrepreneurs building products, whether they're physical products or digital products, how we can do that more successfully and make our customers happier. And make sure you listen to all the way to the end because we have a really insightful discussion with Ben about why it's so important to be thinking about the features your product shouldn't include and why those features your product should include are often as important, if not more important, than all those features we obviously should include be including in our products. So anyway, an amazing discussion today about products and again, whether you are a product entrepreneur or not, you're going to love this show. If you want to learn more about Ben, if you want to learn more about his company, Whoop, his company, Prodify, or his book, Build What Matters, check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash bizshow90. Again, that's biggerpockets.com slash bizshow90. Okay, without any further ado, let's welcome Ben Foster to the show. Ben, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. We have so been looking forward to chatting with you. So thanks again for being here with us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. So Ben, this show is going to be all about the thing you're an expert in, and that's product and creating great products. I want to start with a little bit about you. So can you give us just a little bit of your background? How did you become a product expert? Yeah, just take us through your, your story. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been doing products kind of through and through during my entire career. So a little over 20 years ago, I got into the wonderful world of product management through the technology space. I was a Silicon Valley native, graduated from Berkeley in 97. And that was just sort of like the heyday of technology. I mean, there were so many opportunities to get hired at these amazing companies. And thankfully, I was able to get kind of like, you know, sucked into that whole world and learned a ton really early on. And, and I really wanted to just kind of like apply that to a variety of different startups sometimes some larger companies as well, uh, and really had some great successes, some really miserable failures along the way as well. Uh, you know, we've all got a combination of those things, I think. And then in 2010, after having worked at a number of different technology companies, I moved from Silicon Valley over to the DC area, worked at a company called Opower. We took that public for about a billion dollar valuation in 2014. And then after that, I created my own advisory practice, uh, trying to help other companies with some of the things that I had picked up over the years in product management to try to help to make them successful as well. And I had the good fortune of working with about 40 or 50 companies through an advisory practice called Prodify that I had established. And when I kind of felt like it was about time to be done with that, and I really wanted to get back into direct hands-on operational roles myself to lead product again at a company, I decided to hand the keys of that advisory practice over to uh, somebody who had been working with me for a little bit of, of that time, who does a great job of running that advisory practice and it still lives on today. And then we co-authored a book together to make sure that we had you know, the right kind of thoughts, that we could put those things down on paper, that we could share with the broader community. And that book is called Build What Matters. It's been you know received really well so far, which is fantastic. And then following the publication of that book, I decided to go work full-time for a company that I've been advising for a very long time and a company that I'm really excited about called Whoop. 
awesome. Thank you for that opening and giving us some color around all the great things that you've done. So I would like to set the stage for our community even more, Ben. Can you give us a little bit of insight of what is the difference between a product company and a service company, first of all? And kind of the second part of that question is, what does product include as far as is it just physical products or can it also be internet type companies or digital products? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So, yeah, you know, roughly there are two different kinds of companies out there. There are services companies and there are product companies. And in many ways, what I think distinguishes those two types of companies is service companies first meet the customer that they're trying to provide a service to. And then they try to come up with the service or the offering that's going to deliver value to that customer after they've met them. And they kind of like create the bespoke solution that's going to work for them. In a product-based company, instead, what you're trying to do is understand who the target market will be and almost predict what the next customer is going to look like and what they're going to be looking for. And then you create the right product in advance so that it's the right kind of thing sitting on the shelf for them at the right time. Now, that doesn't have to be a physical shelf. That could be a virtual shelf, right? You know, and if you think about the role of product management, the real function there and the real kind of like, you know, purpose of that role is to identify who that target market is to figure out what kind of product they would want to buy, what kind of value it's going to deliver for them, and then go create that. But there's a lot of art and science that goes into that because it's not just a simple matter of listening to whatever cu- the customer tells you. It's a matter of kind of you know deciphering what all these different types of customers are potentially telling you and trying to predict the future of where the market is actually headed. Yeah. And it's interesting because we use this term product in a lot of different ways. And I know you come from a corporate background, tech Silicon Valley background. We've actually worked together. We worked together at eBay for a number of years, and and that's where we originally met. And so we have a a similar background. I did product for a long time. You did product for a long time. And so when we talk about product, a lot of people think about product with a lowercase p. It's the thing that you're building and designing and, and selling to your customers. But in the corporate world, in the tech world, even in the non tech world, a lot of companies have this thing called product with a capital P. And you've used the term product management. And product with a capital P or product management is basically this idea of creating an organization that does more than just build a lowercase p product. They're focused on designing and validating products and testing the market for them, figuring out the right and wrong features to add. So can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between lowercase product, the thing that you're actually selling, and the uppercase product or product management, like the whole idea of this organization around designing perfect products. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Lowercase p product is the actual product that is for sale. Now, that could be a physical product. You know, Procter & Gamble, for example, has product managers who are responsible for designing and creating and kind of like optimizing the products that are sitting on the shelf that that somebody might go buy from Amazon or from their local CVS or anything else. There's also internet-based products, or there's kind of like software products as well. So you think about things like that are obvious, like Microsoft Word, or you think about sometimes an iPhone. But what about a service that's kind of like a software as a service, like Dropbox? Or what about a marketplace product like eBay itself? You know, is eBay a product? Like it sells products or there's products that are for sale on it, but the actual technology itself is also a product because it's providing a digital service, something that sellers can use to try to like, you know, merchandise their items and a transaction platform that allows those kinds of, you know, transactions to take place. It's got search embedded in it, et cetera. And so what that kind of leads you to, to realize is that, wait, this whole notion of what a product actually is, is fairly complex. And therefore there's this whole discipline 
of product, which is where the capital P component comes in. And that's really kind of like the discipline of product management. And so all the things you know that you had referred to, I think are all part of that, like which kind of features to include, uh, where the product sh- development should be headed next, what kinds of like you know improvements you want to prioritize, whether it's better to focus on, let's say, extending that product to be better for a new target market, or whether you just want to make it a better product for the existing target market. Do you expand internationally, you know, et cetera. These are all kinds of questions that product managers are constantly trying to make decisions around. Around. And then in many ways, their role is to deploy the resources that the company has to maximize the success of that product within the market. So often that's kind of like software development, right? So product managers themselves don't write code, but they're explaining to the engineers the areas that they should be focused on when they're writing code so that the code that they're developing has the uh, sort of like the maximum impact for the business. That makes perfect sense. But let me ask you a question. So a lot of our community, a lot of our listeners are solo entrepreneurs. They're launching a first product kind of by themselves, maybe with a partner. You've mentioned companies like eBay and Procter & Gamble, and obviously these are multi-billion dollar companies that have teams of literally hundreds of people that are focused on capital product management, capital P product management. What about us as smaller entrepreneurs who are just getting started? Is this whole discipline of product just as important to us? And are there things that we can be doing as solo entrepreneurs or small companies to kind of really be improving our ability to churn out great products when we don't have large teams around us? Yeah, it's 100% relevant no matter what size company you are. And in fact, I would actually argue that it's even more important for the smaller companies than it is for some of the larger ones. It's a little bit easier to sometimes describe in terms that everybody can understand what product means at a larger company, because we all have familiarity with, you know, the Amazons of the world, et cetera. But honestly, sometimes product management is most important when the whole entire company itself is the product, right? Like when you're trying to launch something off the ground, you don't already have a bunch of customers that you're trying to mature. You don't already have a large employee base that you're trying to manage. Uh, you don't already have a bunch of HR issues that you need to address and, you know, different kinds of like, you know, headquarters that you're trying to kind of like think about the locations of, et cetera. There's one thing that matters and that's getting to this thing called product market fit. And so that means that there's a real heavy emphasis on what kind of product you need to build what the features of that product need to be, what the scope of it needs to be, like when do you launch that product, when it's too early, when it's too late, right? So all these kinds of questions emerge that are very meaningful and and can sometimes be the life or death of a company very early on. And in fact, a lot of the companies that I was advising when I was doing full-time advisory work were companies that were just, you know, four people in a garage rather than these monolithic organizations. Okay, cool. So you talked a bit about something I'm personally not entirely familiar with, Ben. And so I'm wondering if there are other people in our community who might like to know a bit more about it. So you mentioned this term product market fit. And I think that comes up a lot in this space. But like I said, a lot of new entrepreneurs may have never specifically heard of this term or how important it is in determining taking a concept um, to blast out a product and make it is successful as it can possibly be. So can you give us more information? Tell us more about what product market fit is, what's it mean to you, and why is it so incredibly important for product entrepreneurs to really grasp this concept fully? 
Yeah, absolutely. So product market fit is kind of this funny term and that it's thrown around a lot within the investor community. It's thrown around a lot among entrepreneurs within Silicon Valley, et cetera, because every time you create a new company or you create a new product, you're effectively taking a risk, right? And like in a services company, you meet the customer first, you ask what they want, you go build exactly what they're asking for, and then you're done, right? The problem is that doesn't scale to then take it to the next company. Maybe what you built for them isn't going to be the right thing for somebody else. And so you're, you're inherently taking a risk when you build a product that's supposed to serve the needs of many potential customers, some of whom you haven't yet met. So product market fit refers to the idea that that risk has basically been sort of like accounted for and paid off so that you actually built the thing that in the market will be successful. And the problem is a lot of people ask, well, what's the definition? How do I know when I've gotten there? And a lot of times what investors will say, or, you know, that they have a hard time kind of defining exactly when you've hit product market fit. And they just sort of say, you'll know it when you see it. And while I've seen it many times over, and I can tell you that's definitely true, I don't know that that actually does a lot of good for people who realize that they don't yet have product market fit. So I kind of think of it as there's three things needing to come together. There's the product, which is really the solution. There's the market, which is really like your set of customers. And then there's the economics, which is kind of like the pricing and making sure that everybody can kind of like win in this engagement, right? So in theory, what should happen is that it's like the, it's like the intersection of that Venn diagram with three circles so that there's a solution to a problem that people care about and they are willing to pay you enough to solve that problem such that they are getting the benefit that the ROI makes sense from their perspective. But at the same time, for you as a business, you can actually do this profitably. You can gain customers profitably, you can service those customers profitably, et cetera. And it's kind of like everybody's winning because the product is actually solving the problem that, that people care about. It's a thing that they wanna solve. They're flocking to you. Like signals that you've actually achieved product market fit, for example, is that you're not having to do a huge amount of work to go explain why your product matters or why it's better than everybody else's or why the problem that you're even solving is something that's even important to their to the potential customer they're coming to you because they realize it that's when you've kind of like nailed it right and a lot of investors are really looking for that because once you've had product market fit then it's just a matter of like dumping money into marketing and sales and things like that to have this thing really take off but you wouldn't want to dump marketing dollars in and things like that into a product that doesn't yet have product market fit because every one of those dollars is probably not going to yield as much sort of like return as you might be looking for. Yeah, I love that. And I love the fact that you kind of were able to distill the three core components of great product market fit down into product, market, and economics. And I, I imagine that for somebody to be a great product manager, for somebody to be great at product, they have to have a handle on those three things creating a great product, understanding the market and, and discovering the market, and then the economics of whatever the company and the product is. So you clearly took product to the next level. You did product at, at a number of individual companies, and then you started a consulting firm where you went out and it sounds like you found companies that needed help, I assume startup companies that needed help with their product. Mm -hmm. And you came in and you basically served as the expert while they were growing. And we talked earlier about how especially small companies need great product people, even more so than big companies, because that is the company at the early stage. So let's say in, in your experience, I'm, I'm a CEO at a small company, we're building a product, perhaps we bring in somebody like you to come help us build. But at some point, we're going to want to hire our own product people. Can you give us an idea of what differentiates a great product person or a great product team from just a mediocre one? What are those qualities and traits you look for in somebody that's going to be a great product person? 
Yeah, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs make a mistake when they make their first product hire. Mistake number one is that they hire that person too early because they think, well, I need somebody who's an expert in this kind of stuff. And it's like, the expert in this is you. <laughs> you're the one who started the company. You're the one who's the founder. You're the one who had the idea for a better product or a better service that might better kind of like, you know, address the needs of the market that's out there. So, you know, getting that thing out the door, launching it, et cetera, is kind of like first and foremost, your job as the entrepreneur. When you do make the product, manager hire and the right time for that might be let's say when you have several engineers that are all kind of like you know working on on you know building code or you have several different kind of like product designers that are working on things then you might want to have somebody who's who's specializing in product management because it's just going to suck up too much of your time right so in a lot of ways i kind of think of that first product hire as being a little bit different than what you might make when you for a hire when you hire that first product executive there's one thing that's consistent about both which is that they need to have a great product mindset and the mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs entrepreneurs make, I think, when they make their first product hire is they're looking for somebody with a lot of domain expertise. They say, you know, well, I'm in the financial services industry, and therefore I want to know get, get somebody who really understands everything there is to know about financial services and exactly how it works, et cetera. But the whole thing is, with a product is that you're trying to be innovative. You're trying to think out of the box about ways of delivering this in a, in a new way. And what I've kind of like found is that the most innovative people are the ones who can be creative in taking how a problem was solved in another industry sometimes and port that over to this other industry as well, right? So if you think about all kind of like, you know, these best innovations, it's really a matter of, of learning the space from scratch, being able to think outside the box about how that kind of like space may have a better solution available for it, and then crafting that. And so I really want somebody, if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, like if I was going to make my first product hire, I would say, well, I'm going to be initially the person who's in charge of that kind of stuff, because I'm the one with the idea, you know, I've got the, I've got the vision on this, but eventually that, that work's going to become, you know, quite taxing and I need to have somebody else that I can delegate it to. So I make my first product hire. And what I really want to know is that I can trust them to make decisions on my behalf when it comes to prioritization of what to work on next, when it comes to decisions about which features need to be included and which features don't need to be included, that they have a really good design sensibility, that they can sort of like, you know, find ways of getting the 80-20 rule met where they're getting 80% of the value with 20% of the work, because there's always a bunch of ideas that we don't have time to get done. And so those are the kinds of things that I'm looking for when I think about a product manager to be successful early on, rather than do they actually just kind of like understand the domain. And if they are really smart and they're really curious and they're really observant and they're willing to do the kind of like customer interviews, they'll figure out what they need to learn about the space, about the domain and about the customer base. But I want them to be able to apply that product mindset and that curiosity to think about how they can solve long-term problems in new ways. Love it. So you're talking all about this product mindset, this problem solving, all of the right traits of the right people to hire on your product team. And in that vein, you've also mentioned that these product-driven companies with the right people can be far more successful than service-driven companies, but it can also be more challenging, right? So can you talk mm -hmm. to us more about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the simple version of it goes like this, right? If you're providing a service, you then you might speak to a potential customer, you learn exactly what their goals and their interests are, and then you design some sort of a solution that's going to work exactly for them. So the risk is really low that you're going to screw it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you think about it, you know, think of like a financial planner who might work with you, right? Like that's a service. They meet with you, you share a meal together, you know, they ask what your retirement goals are, et cetera, and then they come up with a strategy that makes sense. And then they do that with the next person and the next person. The problem is it's really hard to scale that. But if you think instead about a product, maybe something like mint.com, or you think about, you know, some of the products that are 
to, you know, provided by Intuit or Wealthfront or, you know, companies like that, that they have like, you know, whether it's a mobile solution or a software solution, they don't have any people who are there who can then respond to what the individual kind of like needs of the customer will be. They have to kind of like design the product as a single one size fits all solution for, for a whole entire market. And that may mean that the product itself asks those questions, but it means it all has to be programmed from the beginning, right? To be kind of like, again, one size fits all. So that's what is dangerous about it is what happens if you find that your one size fits all solution is actually one in which one size fits none. Nobody actually cares about it. They don't want to have that kind of interaction, et cetera. So you are taking a risk by doing this. But the reason it's worth taking that risk is because it scales so much better, right? You know, imagine, you know, the the same people who started some of those companies that I just described, if they had instead started a financial services company in a traditional manner, there's no way that the companies that they had founded 10 years ago would be worth anywhere near the value of some of these product-based companies, you know, along the way. So there's a lot of product companies that go out of business because they they try to take this shot and, and they miss the shot on goal. But when you hit that shot on goal, then the potential valuation really kind of like soars for the company. And, and that's really just an artifact of both the scaling that you actually get and the growth rates that you get from that, but also the potential future scaling that goes beyond that because you've built a platform, you've built a data set, et cetera, that allows you to build even more products layered on top of that. You know, consider what Amazon did when they started by just selling books and they had They've taken technology after technology after technology that they've built and continue to build new products layered on top of the existing technology, which then gives them a leg up when they kind of think about beating the competition in some new space that perhaps they hadn't even you know been involved in previously. That's great. I, I love that. Let's jump into, okay, so our, our listeners have decided, great, you've convinced us. Product company is the way to go, and, and we, we think we have that perfect product, and we start to develop the product. But one of the biggest challenges I've seen with small entrepreneurs that start to build products is making that decision when to release the first version of the product. You know, if you do it too early, your customers might think your product's awful, and, and they might not come back, and now you've lost an opportunity. But if you wait too long, you potentially spent a ridiculous amount of time and a, different, uh, a ridiculous amount of effort building something that doesn't have great product market fit. So what What's the right balance for a small entrepreneur when deciding when to release that V1 of their product? Mm -hmm. The vast majority of entrepreneurs, I would say, release their product far too late. You know, they think that it needs to be perfect. Right? They've got a high bar for what they the, what they want to provide. They believe, you know, in, in this kind of like future product potential that could be out there. You look, you want to be proud of what you deliver. I think we all kind of like understand that. I think the reason that often they go too late is because they're still thinking a little bit too small early on. It's kind of like, well, what if the top 10 customers that I get all really don't like the product? You know, what's going to happen? Like, they're all going to hate on it. And then, you know, no one, no one else is going to want to buy it. And I'd actually take the, the flip side approach on this, which is I want to know exactly why they don't like it so that I have an opportunity to address those problems. And then I can take it to the next 10 customers and I can take it to the next 10 customers. And it's okay if the initial kind of like customers don't necessarily like the product. In fact, they're not liking the product is a good thing because that's the best way for you to get real true market feedback and market guidance to help craft that product and kind of like refine that product to be the right kind of thing for the next hundred customers, for the next thousand customers, for the next hundred thousand customers, right? Like that's the notion of, of a product company. And so I kind of think of it as you actually want to carve your market up into a few different groups of, of people. And there's a reason that a lot of companies early on uh, and a lot of like startups will actually offer their product for free for people 
because they know that the product's going to kind of stink. And that's all right, right? That what, they're, what they're trying to provide is something that they can get feedback on. And I think if you think more about that iterative approach of eventually getting to the right place, the faster you can release, the faster you're in a position to get real market feedback that's going to help you to make a better product in the long term. Very, very cool. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. So I want to circle back to one other thing that you mentioned, Ben, that I found really powerful and I suspect our community will as well. You talked a bunch about the extreme power of really layering in new products on top of the infrastructure that you built. And that's super powerful. On the show, mm -hmm. we talk a lot about scalability. We talk a lot about building adjacent businesses rather than just starting over and over from scratch whenever there's a new possibility a new opportunity, right? So you've also mentioned in, in doing this that there are lots of different directions that you can take a product when you're adding in those layers or going in different directions. But you probably, I would suspect, in order to innovate, you need to say you need, need to really say no to most of them rather than just saying, yes, let's do this and this and more and more and more. So can you talk to us more about that? And I'm, I suspect you've got a lot of good stories about both good and bad <laughs> product, right? Yeah, absolutely. The The product manager's curse in a lot of ways is that they always have about 10 times as many things that, that they want to do with their product than that they actually have the capacity to get done. And that can be a real frustration in the role because you have all these great ideas and, and you want to make them all go happen, etc. You got to look at that as kind of like a blessing in disguise to some extent. Like, you know, I think early in my career, I was very frustrated by that reality. And now I've kind of come to really embrace it, which is what that means is you get to cherry pick and, and choose the best few things to work on. And yes, it means you will have to say no to everything else, but saying no to everything else is part of the innovative process. In fact, there's this great kind of like Steve Jobs quote that, you know, some people may have heard and other people may not have, which is, you know, he said that innovation is saying no to a thousand things. And I really like that because, you know, if you think about product strategy, you think about, uh, you know, product vision, a lot of times people interpret that as what are all the things you're going to do? And in a lot of ways, what it's actually used for is to decide what not to do, to say this is outside the scope of what we decided we wanted to work on. This is this shiny kind of like, opportunity that looks, you know, that looks good over here. But if we say yes to that and we say yes to this and we say yes to this, we kind of fall into the trap of becoming that services-based company again, right? Because now what we're doing is responding to things that we happen to see rather than taking a point of view about what it is that we're going to do uh, and then going and building that. And if you can do that by really saying no to all these other kind of, you know, opportunities that are, that are going to be outstanding. So there's going to be a million different kind of like directions that you can go. The plan here is to figure out which few matter the most because they're most essential to where you're headed long term. I think a lot of times what happens is, you know, look in the earlier stages, you're getting started, you're trying to build a product, you're just trying to get to that product market fit. And that is the right kind of thing to do. But once you achieve that, you realize that the whole entire world has opened up to you. You know, do I take this product market fit that I have here? And now do I go try to get product market fit for a different market? You know, hey, th this technology could be used in these five other industries. Or maybe, you know, we've been working with small to medium businesses. And what about the 
enterprise accounts, they're worth a lot of money. We can go in those directions. What about just refining the product and making it better one? Or what if we integrated some other, you know, company that we could potentially acquire, right? Like the list just goes on and on and on of these different directions that are all possible. But the question is, which of those are stepping stones? And it's sort of like the, the most important next stepping stone for you to get to, to help to achieve the product vision that you've outlined that may be, you know, three or five years down the road. And if you can identify exactly what that is, because you've kind of like taken a step back and try to think about what your product vision actually is for what, what it is that you want to deliver, you may realize that everything else is fluff. And there's one thing that really matters the most. And once you can figure that out, then you're in a great position as the leader of the company to then guide everybody to kind of like swim in the same direction, right? Like we're all going here. And once you can do that, then I think you can just move so much more quickly as an organization. And that becomes a competitive differentiator in its own right. Yeah, it's funny because we think of all of these big companies that we want our companies to eventually grow into. And we think of them as doing a million things. Obviously, Microsoft has a million products, both in the consumer space and 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 the B2B space and, and basically everywhere, probably government space and hardware and software. Mm -hmm. We look at, uh, at at Apple and obviously they're, they're doing computers and phones and this and that and Procter and & Gamble and all these companies do a million things. But if you think about it, most of these companies made their name by doing one thing for a really long time really, really well. Microsoft started with Windows. That's what they're known for. Apple started with the Mac. That's what they're known for. So even these large companies, I mean, Google now owns everything, but what was Google? Google was search, and that's what they're known for, even though it may not even be the, the core business, if you really think about it right now, of, of what they're in. And so it, it's so important to, to really, I, I just, I'm just agreeing with you, it's so important to really figure out what that one thing is that, that your company and your product is about and focus on that until it's successful. And then at that point, you can figure out where to to go next, whether it's to iterate on that product or to bring in adjacent products or bring in new products, whatever it is. So now that I've, I guess I've, I've kind of talked a little bit about a couple of these big companies, obviously you've been associated with a number of these big companies. You've seen a lot of different products, both in your professional life and I'm sure in your personal life. Let's talk about some good and bad products that you've seen. And this could be either stuff you've worked on or just products that you use in your everyday life. Like, I'm just curious from somebody that's a product expert, what is, what are some examples of great products and some horrible products? <laughs> well, I'm a bit biased, but well, you know, one of the major reasons that I went to go work for Whoop was because I really love the product. Whoop makes a, a wearable device uh, that's kind of like the Ferrari uh, within the wearable space, if you will. And the thing that I really love about it is that there's clear differentiation of what Whoop does versus some of the other wearable devices that are out there, whether that's like an Amazon Halo or you know some other kind of like you know Garmin or Polar Watch, etc. And the reason it's different is because everything else is kind of like a tracker, and it tells you what you've done. And at Whoop, we try to tell you what to do next. And I think that's one of the critical kind of like differences. And so when we think about what the Whoop product is about, it's about kind of like understanding your body and what's actually going on inside of it at a far greater level of depth, but then utilizing that information to then provide coaching to people. So they become kind of like reliant on it. Like, how would I know what workout to do if Whoop didn't sort of like explain to me what my body was actually prepared for? How would I know how much additional sleep that I need tonight based on the run that I did earlier today, you know, et cetera. And so those are the kinds of things that we try to provide because if we can do that, then we can make a material difference in whether people are actually able to accomplish their goals. And I think that's foundationally different than what a lot of the other companies are doing in the wearable space. So I kind of look for that type of same thing across all other industries when I answer this question about what my favorite products are. I'll, I'll say that like I love products that have 
two sides to them. One of them is where you're collecting data with one part of a product, and then you're utilizing that data for some other part of the product, right? And so LinkedIn might be a really good example of this, right? Like, you know, LinkedIn is a we all think of it primarily as like this free product. And it's a it's like a social media platform for business, right? And, and everybody can kind of connect to each other and stuff like that. Well, if that's all that it is, why is LinkedIn worth billions of dollars? Because there's no revenue associated with that. Well, there's no direct revenue associated with that, but there's a hell of a lot of indirect revenue associated with that, right? And so LinkedIn is actually more of a recruiting company, right? They provide recruiting tools. Uh, they help you to find jobs, et cetera. And so there are all these ways that recruiters kind of like spend a ton of money to try to find good candidates via LinkedIn. But the thing that's differentiated about LinkedIn is that they've created this proprietary data set that nobody else can really access that allows you to understand who's connected to who and what that actually means about the quality of candidates. It allows you to do better sourcing than you ever otherwise would have ever been able to do as a recruiter, et cetera. And so they've created through this free component of their product suite, this proprietary data asset that nobody else can touch that's over here and gives them kind of like an unfair advantage when they think about how their recruiting solutions compare to anybody else's recruiting solutions. And if you think about it through that lens, I love companies that do that because it's like they have this incredible strength that allows them to kind of like be differentiated now and kind of like forever, as long as they continue to invest in it. You know, I mean, Google is another example of this as well, just Google search by itself. You know, you provide free search and you're good to go with, you know, you run any sort of like search, you become acclimated to using Google for everything. But Google in providing free search, it's like, you know, that's fairly expensive. There's a lot of servers behind that, you know, all the time. Why is that money worth spending? Because the data that they collect about when somebody searches for this term and then they get shown these results, then they click on this particular one and then they actually go visit, you know, uh, on that site versus they bounce off and go somewhere else, gives them a data asset that they can use to then create better advertising solutions than anybody else could ever provide, right? And no one else has access to the same kind of data volume that Google does. So they utilize that to then make their advertising products better. And I just kind of like, I'm always fascinated with that strategy because I think it's one that seems to prove itself as a way of driving tens of billions of dollars of valuation for companies, you know, time and time again. Yeah, I was I was actually reading something yesterday that goes right to the heart of what you were saying. It was a quote or a discussion with Elon Musk uh, about Tesla and why Tesla will likely win the self-driving car wars. One, they were they were first or they were one of the first, but two, a lot of other car companies rely on simulation data. So they create these non-real-world simulations, and they use those simulations to kind of program their cars to self-drive and, and do the right things and not do the wrong things. But the, the competitive advantage, or one of the competitive advantages that Tesla has is, in addition to the simulations, they've got millions of miles and hundreds of thousands of hours of actual data from real drivers and real cars on the road that they can then iterate on and feedback and do natural language process, or not natural language, but AI on and and, mm -hmm. and learning mechanisms on uh, to take that real world data and actually improve their product based on that real world data. Whereas all the other companies, all they have are fake simulations because they don't yet have this data. They haven't figured out how to use that data. And it's one of the reasons why great companies that have this data can basically start to snowball. They're providing mm -hmm. their own competitive advantage to improve the product and improve the company and grow the company in the future. And they will grow exponentially as opposed to linearly because that data is just kind of self-reinforcing, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it 100% makes sense. Like that, that's, that's exactly the strategy, right? And I think that with the advent of more and more 
AI technologies that are kind of like plug and play that can be provided to companies as well. Just the mere fact of having a very large data asset is something that itself is monetizable, either by you building your own kind of like products layered on top or, you know, making that data available to other parties as well. So I think everybody's starting to understand that the AI algorithms themselves are not really like that different from one another. It's kind of like, it, it's just a big algorithm that you plug a bunch of data in. What separates one company's ability to make the most of AI versus another is their data volumes that they have. And you know, to your point, whether that data is high quality, like real actual driving miles versus simulation, uh, where you don't really know how to interpret that when it comes to dealing with real world circumstances. Cool. So you've talked a lot about all of these characteristics of the types of companies you really do like. I want to know more about the type of uh, products you don't like or uh, some big mistakes you might see product companies making. Ooh, yeah. I think mistakes that I see product companies making, there's probably <laughs> so many there that it's hard to like choose one. I would say on, on the mistakes that, that I see some product companies making, I think one of them that's very clear is that they get so hung up on adding more and more features to their product that they start to not realize the damage that it actually does for new customers. And so just think about this like with Microsoft Word, right? Like they had word processing for years and years, like decades before other people had it, right? Like Google Docs didn't come around until much later. And yet Google Docs is utilized probably much more than Microsoft Word is at this point, not because Microsoft Word is a bad product, but because they just kept thinking about, hey, what's the next feature we could add? How can we do even more crazy rich text editing? And the more convoluted, the more complex the product became, the more of a learning curve there was to kind of like getting up and running with it. And so now you get somebody new who enters the workforce and you sort of like see Google Docs. And instead what it has is something that's kind of like differentiated which is just this like collaboration kind of like capability. And that collaboration capability was worth more than all of the features of rich text editing that Microsoft Word could offer combined. Now, obviously, Microsoft has kind of like, you know, followed suit and, you know, built a lot more of kind of like the, the collaborative kind of like capabilities uh, into their products and stuff like that since. But they ended up having to kind of like come back and play the catch up game because they were so consumed with thinking about the next kind of like advancement. And I think that that's an artifact of, of something that happens where if you talk to your customers in the wrong way or you get market input in the wrong using a wrong methodology you will often be tempted to keep adding more and more features to your product and and what happens is a lot of entrepreneurs or product managers will talk to their existing customers and they'll talk to their most valuable existing customers so the power users of the product you know are basically the people who get like an outsized voice and so what are the power users looking for from your product well they're already using it a ton and so they're just thinking about well this thing would make my life a little bit easier if you just added this capability and this this, you know, bell and whistle over here would be really helpful if you just had the following, you know, additional uh, thing that you could kind of like layer on top of the product over there. And those things all make sense. Like there's no reason necessarily not to do them other than kind of like managing the ongoing product complexity. But what's more important is the sort of megaphone that you provide to those power users ends up drowning out the voices of the customers who you really should be paying a lot more attention to, which are those ones that are like more on the periphery, those ones that are sort of like, you know, prospective new customers, customers who evaluate your product and then decide not to buy it. I want to go talk to them because I want to find out, hey, if I go build stuff for you, you would then buy my product. And so that's where you're getting the, the maximum business leverage in terms of like making a better product is taking somebody who chooses not to buy it today. What would make them instead buy it tomorrow? Right. And having that kind of conversation is far better than having the conversation with somebody who's already a power user, already paying you to the fullest extent possible for the product you already have. You could invest into the product, you know, over and over and over for those people. But it's almost like wasted effort to some extent because you're not really 
really getting a lot of like, you know, business gain from those improvements that you're making to the product. And what you are doing is you're making it much more complex and, and difficult for other people to understand when they kind of like, you know, come in. And you see that kind of thing happen a lot, especially in the business software space, where you always see these, these uh, products that were sort of like relatively simple to use back in the day and perceived to be these sort of like, you know, major leaps forward. And then over the course of 10 years, they kind of fall into this thing called the innovator's dilemma, where they sort of like, you know, keep adding more and more capabilities to their product to try to make it better and better and better. And in the meantime, what they actually expose is the opportunity for some alternate party to come in and come in with a new, fresher, more interesting, sort of like easier to digest version that they themselves used to be 10 years back. And then now they've kind of like created that opportunity for somebody else now. And so that's how you see like a lot of these companies get leapfrogged is on the one hand, they want to improve the product for their existing customer base. And on the other hand, they sort of like alienate the future customer base that they really should be thinking about instead. Yeah, and it's funny as you were having that, as you were saying that, I was sitting here thinking, ah, the innovator's dilemma. Which, for anybody that hasn't read that book, it's a book by a, a gentleman named Christian Claytonson, and it's an amazing book on why products and, and companies that seem to have a dominating position in their industry often go away very quickly. And you can think companies like Xerox is, is, is a great example and HP to some extent, and just an amazing book. Speaking of amazing books, I want to talk about your book. So you've written what I consider, and I've read a lot of books on product and business, but you, you have what I consider to be the absolute best book on product. And anybody out there that is building a product or building a company that revolves around building products needs to read this book. I want to talk a little bit about Build What Matters. So this is the book you released a few months ago. Can you talk to us about why you wrote the book, who should be reading it, who it's geared towards? Just give us a, a basic overview of the book. Yeah, sounds great. Um, well, thanks for the kind words about the book. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been really well received since we published it. It's, it's, it's very rewarding to have gone through that process. So the reason that Rajesh Nurlikar, who's my co-author and the guy who's now running the advisory practice that I had founded called Prodify, uh, he and I wrote the book together because we had both done so much work with so many startups in the technology space, working with them on some of these things we've talked about earlier in this, in this episode around product management, best practices, how to hire for product management, how to organize your team how to think about the innovator's dilemma, et cetera. And we kind of wanted to pull all those thoughts together into one place. And it is interesting, right? You, you, when you work with one company, you get one data point. You work with another company, you get another data point. But we've had the good fortune of working with like 70 different companies at this point. And so you start to see, it's like you see the matrix a little bit and you start to, to understand the signal that exists between all these different kinds of like, you know, companies of, hmm, this is really interesting. In the 10 times that we've seen this, it's worked really well every single time. And in the 10 times that we've seen that, it's failed every single time. Like, wait, maybe there's really something there. And it kind of gives us the ability to, to see things that I think a lot of other uh, entrepreneurs have a struggle seeing because they just don't have as many data points that they can access. And so we kind of wanted to share a lot of the things that we had learned along the way. And as we were advising each company, we were taking all the things that we had learned from the prior companies that we advised. And we kind of realized, hey, wait, maybe we could do this for everybody else, even if we don't have a chance to advise them directly ourselves. And maybe it's actually give them some sort of, you know, reason to, to want to talk to us and, and be interested in kind of like, you know, consulting with us as well. And so we kind of wanted to just share that knowledge. And, and some of the key things that we had identified that were critical success factors for for new companies and for startups, especially in the technology space, were just really just kind of a few things. I think one of them is they needed to really understand fundamentally what it meant to be a product company. And to Carol's point, I think the importance of being able to say no, right? And to be selective about when you are focused on certain kinds of like, you know, outcomes that you want to deliver and when you're going to sort of like, you know, 
put your hand out and say, no, we're not going to go work on that. So I think that that was, uh, that was one thing that really stood out. I think a second thing that stood out to us was that companies fell into a trap because they're looking at their own success metrics in terms of like, you know, revenue or growth rate or margin percent and things like that. And they were always trying to think about ways that they could improve their own business outcomes. And what we discovered is that the companies that were actually the best at getting their own business outcomes were not the ones that paid fullest attention to just those things. The companies that were most successful were the ones who were really good at getting product market fit. And product market fit was coming by really having a true appreciation of what drove customers to be successful using the product. What was the problem that customers really needed to have solved? How could they go about solving it? And it kind of goes like this. It's like you're trying to, at the end of the day, your product is an attempt to deliver value to the customer. And it doesn't matter how good you are at optimizing, squeezing out margin for yourself out of your product by having the right monetization strategy and the right optimizations of conversion funnels and everything else. If your product kind of stinks and it doesn't deliver good value to customers, it's going to be a short-lived success that you're going to have. The companies that are really successful are the ones that really concentrate the vast majority of their energy on thinking about how we deliver better and better value to our customers. And then as a secondary consideration is, how do we then extract a percentage of that revenue kind of like back for ourselves? in a fair way that customers would be more than happy to pay us for because of the value that they're getting from the, from the product. And I think that those companies that really do a good job of that are the ones that do great kind of like customer research. They understand who their target market is. They figure out the personas that they're designing for. They understand the problems from the customer's vantage point. They understand success measures from the customer's vantage point. And when you fail to do that, you kind of like skip that step. You're kind of like skipping the step of understanding the secret to your own success as a company as well. And so that was kind of like the, the most pronounced kind of like takeaway I think that we had had from a lot of our kind of like consulting and advising of companies is that that was the the big kind of like differentiator between successes and failures. And then the last one was that a lot of companies at that earlier stage, you know, kind of struggle to say, okay, great. Now we have this vision that's kind of like, you know, grounded in what our customers on success would be. The next question is, how do we then tie together our vision for where we want the product to go and our day-to-day operations of our product development activities, right? Um, and I see a lot of companies where they actually have one and they have the other, but the two are completely disconnected. So they're like, hey, you know, you have a conversation with the founder or the CEO, and they paint this great picture of what the vision of the company is going to be, how they're going to deliver value over the course of, you know, three, five years from now, et cetera. And that's all really nice. And it sounds wonderful. But then I ask, well, what are you working on right now? And how does how is what you're working on today tying back to those goals that you've sort of like set for yourself? And like, oh, uh, well, temporarily we're working on these things because obviously these are really important right now. And the problem is that's true today. And you sort of like have this this sort of like sense that in a quarter or two, you're going to find yourself kind of like out of that hole. And the reality is it's actually a manifestation or a representation of the culture of the company, which is that they're just responding to the one-off kind of like things that are out there. And the companies, finally, the third thing I think is really important is that the companies that are successful are the ones that can successfully say no. And they use their vision as a way of saying no. They say, these are the things we're going to be working on. Therefore, everything else is fluff. Uh, We're going to say no to those things. And we're going to focus the vast majority of our attention on the realization of that vision that we had established. Very cool. So speaking of all these successful companies, right, and the characteristics of them, you started Pratify, which was another successful product consulting company. But At some point along the way, you realize that one of the companies you were advising was totally worth going all in on. So you turned over your consulting company to your partner and you joined Whoop full time, right? So Mm -hmm. what is it about the product there that led you to go all in? And what are you currently building at Whoop? That's totally amazing. 
Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. It was actually really hard to choose to leave the advisory practice myself just because I have loved every moment of collaborating with all these companies. I actually enjoy teaching about product more than I enjoy even doing it, to be honest. However, the, the thing about Whoop that was really just so spectacular is this is a company that had all the parts in the first place. Like we had a good vision for where we wanted to head. We had tremendous people. We had a great sort of like market and a great opportunity in front of us. We had already achieved product market fit. And the question was now, as we grow in this tremendous kind of like pace, how are we going to continue to kind of like, you know, innovate and create new kind of like benefits for our customers, et cetera. And I was just really excited about that. And because I knew all the people involved and I've been working with them for many years, I knew exactly what I was getting into. And I gotta say, that's one of the things that was just really kind of like helped take the edge off of, of going somewhere new was uh, was the fact that I didn't feel like I was taking a big risk on that front. And so a lot of the trust was already established, et cetera. And it was just like a thing that was a, that was a very natural fit for me. So that's number one. And then number two is I have always just really enjoyed that hyper growth kind of like stage of a company. You know, I love companies that are sort of like in those teenage years of like everything's changing constantly. You don't have every sort of like, you know, nuance figured out yet. So you have a good thing going, but you still kind of like need to grow up in some ways. And so, you know, the world is kind of like changing a lot around you. And that's kind of the, the situation that we find ourselves in at Whoop. So for example, I am hiring a person to the product team every week. And I have been hiring somebody every week for quite some time now. And so, you know, we're growing the team tremendously quickly. Uh, it's changing constantly who's responsible for what. And that's like a, kind of a frenetic and kind of like wild situation. I personally love that. And I kind of like find it, you know, exciting to me. It's like, you know, being on a roller coaster in the good way. I and mean, I just kind of, you know, love, love all the kind of like twists and turns and trying to kind of like, you know, keep things on the rails as, as we're moving. So that was just kind of like personally fun for me. And then lastly, I think that when you're consulting at the end of the day, it's the client that you're working for who owns their own success. You know, you're you're a helping hand along the way, right? But you're not the hero of their story. You know, you're they're the hero of their story. And I think that, you know, your job is to kind of like be the mentor and the guide and the coach. Um, and that's very rewarding in its own way. There's no doubt. I, I love that kind of like stuff as well. But I kind of felt like I had one more time in me to try to go back to a company and really have that ownership of the outcomes at the end of the day. Um, I've had great successes with eBay. I've had great success with Opower, a company that I worked at that took me to the East Coast back in 2010 to 2014. And I really wanted to kind of go back and, and do that one more time and have another kind of like, you know, tremendous kind of like success that I can look back upon fondly, et cetera. And so I feel really good about the trajectory that we're on at Whoop. We're building some amazing, you know, elements to this product. And as discussed earlier, some of the, the differentiators of Whoop versus some of the other products in the wearable space are kind of like, you know, fairly clear to me in terms of that notion of like coaching and kind of telling people what to do next. So when we layer on top of that, all the ways that we can drive engagement, we think about ways of involving the community, you know, to try to get other people who are Whoop members to inspire other Whoop members to change things in their life. We think about things like personalization and how we can sort of like, you know, adapt the product to be still a one size fits all product, um, but to do so in such a way that it reflects back to members what their individual goals are for themselves and to show them the progress that they're making. So if somebody says, you know, my goal is to shave 10 pounds off on the scale, that we help them to actually do that. And if somebody else says, my goal is to shave 30 seconds off of my one mile time, uh, then we help them to do that. And so we want to kind of like, you know, show people how we're helping them to drive the things that they care about most using the product. Um, and so these are all kind of like interesting kind of like paths that will go. I'm sure over time we'll kind of like, you know, move towards internationalization of the product as well. And these are all kind of like, you know, fun 
endeavors that I think we'll work on as a company. And I know for a fact that as we develop those kinds of capabilities within the product further and further, uh, that that will create for us, you know, tremendous kind of like business value and, and, you know, return for our shareholders, which is something that excites me for sure. But we're going to do that the right way. We're not going to do it because we optimize rounded corners on some sort of a button to increase the click-through rate by 0.1%. We're going to do that because we delivered tremendous and meaningful customer value and something that customers want to keep coming back to day after day after day. Yeah, it's cool because it's not just a Me Too product. Carol and I were talking about it earlier, and she she chose the perfect word to describe the Woo product because it, it's funny. We actually, at the beginning of the year, and we didn't even look into Whoop. We will now. With Earlier in the year, we actually <laughs> bought a fitness tracking watch. And one of the things that I've been thinking about using it for the last week or so is that it's basically just a historical record. The difference with your product is that, and this is a word that Carol used that I think is the perfect word, it's prescriptive. Yeah. It, it doesn't just tell you what you've done. It tells you what you should be changing, what you should be doing differently to hit your goals, not just where you've been so that you can then figure out yourself how to hit, hit your goals. So one question I have, so, and I'm asking this more personally, not necessarily as an interviewer, because again, we're on the market for uh, a product like this. Is this meant for people like me, an old guy who's out of shape that's trying to lose 10 or 20 pounds? Or is this more meant for athletes and people that are like peak performance type people? Yeah, we, we got that question a lot. You know, I think in the very earliest days of Whoop, it was sort of like, you know, intended really primarily for like those triathlete types and CrossFitters and, you know, folks like that. And what we realized is that what really made the product valuable for people was not so much that it was specifically about running or biking and, and, you know, swimming and things like that. But what it was really all about was helping people who were themselves motivated to make a change and help them to understand what the drivers of those of those changes would actually be. So, for example, if you want to lose some weight, we've done the, the real hard science of understanding, for example, how sleep consistency is a fundamental element of weight loss. Uh, as it turns out, you wouldn't necessarily think it. It's not necessarily intuitive, but it turns out that that's actually a really big deal. And so sleep consistency matters both for those triathletes who want to optimize, you know, how they perform on a given like race day and things like that. But it matters also to those kinds of people who have other goals in their lives. And so I think the reason that we've been really successful recently and our growth rate has really gone tremendously up from where it was even just a couple of years ago is because we've sort of like really struck that nerve, I think, with people who are motivated. Now, I will say that Whoop probably isn't the best kind of thing if you're, you know, a major couch potato and you just sort of like, you know, want to make sure that you're getting a few steps. Like, for example, we have intentionally to the point about saying no to certain things. We've decided that steps is never a thing that we're intending to build into the product, right? So if a step tracker that tells you how many steps you did yesterday is something that's really important to you, then maybe another product is going to be better. But if what you actually care about is achieving some sort of a goal for yourself and you're motivated to go make that happen, then there's no better tool that you're going to find out there for helping to achieve that than Whoop, because it's going to provide better kind of like, you know, information about what's actually going on in your body. So for example, you wake up every morning and you get a recovery score that tells you what to do. Now, there's a lot of people who want to kind of like, you know, let's say lose weight or get back in shape. And one of the things that we've all probably experienced having done that is that you're, you're doing really well for three days, but it's almost like you're doing a little bit too well and you wake up on that fourth day and you're like, oh my God, you know, it, it, <laughs> like in early January, you, you run into those situations. Where you're like, oh, my, I can't, I can't do this anymore, you know, whatever. And so you fall off, right? So what we've done the hard work to figure out is what are those kinds of like behavioral patterns that are going to help people to be consistent with those behaviors? And so we give a recommendation for what level of cardiovascular strain is actually appropriate for today, given how you woke up this morning. Because what happens is people kind of like spiral out of control 
control where they wake up and they kind of have this red recovery that try to push themselves anyway. And then their body is just like, nope, this isn't going to work. Right. And so that's what prevents them from actually hitting their goals. So depending on what your goals are, you can see different kind of like strain recommendations that are appropriate given where your recovery started in that morning. And so to Carol's point about being prescriptive, that's exactly the word that we try to use internally as well is because we think that's where the value really lies for our members. Yeah, I, I love that. And there was a great lesson in there that you glossed over, but really kind of hit me hard, which is that sometimes there are features that all your competitors, or, or maybe they're not your competitors, people may think you're, they're your competitors, have, mm -hmm. and that we really have to look at and make a conscious decision whether these are the right features for us. And you talked about not having steps in yours. To think like a, a wearable that's tracking fitness wouldn't have steps, first kind of reaction is, well, that's crazy. But the second reaction mm -hmm. is, well, why should it, if, if we don't need it, if it's not necessary for our core customer demographic and what their goals are and what the goal of the product is. And so it, it great product people also are always reevaluating whether the feature sets that seem obvious are maybe not obvious. And I imagine the fact that you took that out, while it's not detracting from the product at all, it's probably making the user interface even better. And it's not just clogging the data mm -hmm. that, that's being put in there. And it's actually making your product better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I think that it's a really important thing within product is to think about what should the negative space of your product be? What are the things that should be missing? Because they would be dilutive if you created them, right? And, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, you ever, maybe a, a more kind of like easy to understand example is like, how do you feel about a restaurant when you drive by it? And it's like Chinese food and pizza and French fries. And you're kind of like, ooh, <laughs> I'm not sure that any of those things are going to be very good there, right? To some extent. And I think that, you know, what, what's important in product is that you identify very clearly what differentiates your product? What makes it better? Why would somebody at a party say, I love this product, right? And that comes down to separating three different kinds of features. And there's this there's this whole notion called the Kano model, uh, K-A-N-O, uh, which you can you know research online, that advises that you break the features of your product into three buckets, the must-have kind of capabilities, the performance capabilities, and then these delighters. And so the must-haves, you know, think about buying a car. Like a must-have is seatbelts. Nobody buys a car because it has seatbelts, but remove the seatbelts from the car and no one's going to buy it, right? Like you can sort of expect that they're going to be there. Making Kevlar seatbelts probably isn't going to help you to sell more cars, but you better check the box on the seatbelts, right? The performance characteristics are all those kinds of things that people would be talking about to the, to the salesperson while they're in a test drive, right? Like how does it handle? What's the safety look like? What about the gas mileage? What about the performance and the handling? You know, all those kinds of things. And the delighters of those kinds of things, you know, going back, uh, Jay, to your whole point about, uh, about Tesla is like the touchscreen interface, right? Or the fact that the handles, you know, retract into the car when it's driving. Those are those kind of like cool things that you didn't even expect that you weren't looking for, but once you have them, you would never want to have them taken away, right? And it's really critical when you think about the scope of your product, even an initial product, is to make sure you have all of the must-haves. Because you don't have all the must-haves, you're not even allowed to play the game, right? You know, try to go sell this fancy, amazing car and one that doesn't actually have seatbelts. You're not going to get very far, right? So you got to have all the must-haves. The second thing is you got to have the right set of performance features for your target market. And that's the part that everybody kind of forgets is they think, well, I got to compare it to all the other kind of like products that are out there because they're going to be comparing my product to all these other products. And it's like, yeah, but only for the select market that you're trying to go after. And the more specific you can make that target market early on, 
the more effective you're going to be at having the best offering for them. And you realize that some of the other kinds of things are dilutive, right? So for example, you know, think about there's different types of targets for buying a car, right? Like those who want to buy a Jeep and they're in the market for something like that are looking for like four wheel drive and how does it get out of the mud? And, you know, they're not concerned with like how sporty does it look, uh, you know, or, or does it get to, you know, the zero to 60 timeframes and stuff like that for acceleration? That like, that's not why you're actually buying it, right? And then when you think about a minivan, you're thinking about trunk space. You're thinking about, you know, how many people can you fit? How easy is to move the seats around, et cetera, right? So depending on the market, you're going to have a completely different set of features of, the, of that vehicle that are going to be appropriate for them. If you try to create a one-size-fits-all car that was perfect for everybody, it would be terrible for everyone. And so you don't need to kind of think about adding every single bell and whistle to your product. You got to think about having the right set of things that's right for that specific target market. But the question is, is our target market big enough and meaningful enough that we can be really successful within it? And we believe that we can. And by limiting ourselves to kind of like, you know, that that area of focus is what allows us to create a better user experience because it's not cluttered with everything else that everyone else, you know, is trying to create into their products as well. Um, it allows us to go deeper into those things that matter. So you compare like Whoop, for example, to Apple Watch. We don't have a face on our product, right? There's no... There's no like, you know, thing that tells you what time it is. It doesn't, you know, help you check your emails and things like that, right? So Apple is intentionally going down the path of being a broad but thin product, right? You can check your email, you can send a text, you can use Siri, you know, the list goes on and on. We're not going to have any of those things. But by not having those things, here's the advantage that we get. Our battery lasts, you know, five times longer than that of an Apple Watch, which means you can wear it 24-7, you can charge it while it's on your wrist, and it allows you to wear it overnight every time, which allows you to get sleep data. Sleep data is critical, uh, you know, every single night so that you understand what your recovery looks like the next morning. So you can then uh, determine what your strain should be that day. And it's what allows allows us to be more prescriptive with our product because of the battery life, but we would lose battery life. And that's kind of like a trade-off that we have to make if we try to create a face and go compete head-on with Apple Watch on that front. That's not what we do. So ours is a much deeper and sort of like narrower product for people who are kind of like focused on health, fitness, or athletic performance. And Apple Watch is something that's more broad for people who are kind of like more in a, in a broad market. To be totally honest, their market's bigger. I'm okay with that. I think that it's important for entrepreneurs to think about. I, I love that. Yeah. And we, we always have to remember that knowing who our customer is, is more important than making everybody our customer. It's better to have 50% of a $10 billion market than it is to have a 10th of a percent of a trillion dollar market and knowing where you can compete and who your customer is and, and not trying to be everything to everybody is, is often mm -hmm. the key to success. Trying to be everything to everybody is, is often the key to, to failure. So, Okay. I want to jump to the last segment of the show, which we call Four More. And that's where we ask you the same four questions that we ask all of our guests. And then the more part of the Four More, where we give you an opportunity to tell our listeners where they can connect with you, where they can find out more about your book, and uh, where they can find out more about Whoop and anything else you want to talk about. Sound good? Sounds great. Okay. I will take the first question. Ben, what was your very first or your very worst? I'll let you decide which one. Job. And what lessons did you take from it that you're still using today? My very first job, uh, I don't know if it was my worst, was serving ice cream in an ice cream parlor in my hometown of Arroyo Grande, California. And the thing that I loved about it was that you serve ice cream and like while there's a bunch of, you know, you got to deal with cleaning the bathrooms and all that kind of stuff as well. Like every day you're delighting customers. They come in, they want ice cream, like you serve them ice cream and they just like walk away with the best smiles on their faces. And I think that honestly, I kind of go back to thinking about that from time to time when I visualize customers using the products that I'm creating, even in this digital world where I don't often get to see my customers engaging with the product directly. Awesome. 
Love it. Okay, Ben, second question, and I want you to give a quick 20-second or less answer. You ready? What's the best piece of advice in 20 seconds or less that you have for small business owners or entrepreneurs or potential franchisees or just anybody in this space that you haven't mentioned yet today? All right. Make your customers successful first and your own business success will follow. I love it. That That is... <laughs> Phenomenal. Phenomenal. (laughs) Okay. Question number three. Besides the two books we've talked about, your book, Build What Matters, and The Innovator's Dilemma that we discussed, what's your favorite book out there that maybe not everybody has already read and and should be reading? Yeah. Let's see. I'll point to one called Escaping the Build Trap by Melissa Perry, uh, who's also a product management consultant. And I think she's written a really good book about the difference between thinking about output, like how much you deliver and how many features you ship and things like that, versus outcomes. Like what are the actual results that you get from that? And how do you kind of like emphasize the outcomes over the output? I think it's a really good read. Awesome. Okay. The fourth one is one of my favorites. What is something along the way in either your personal life or your work life, wherever, however, whatever, that you splurged on that was totally and entirely worth it. So I work ridiculously long hours. And so I don't get to a, lot, a lot of time to, to spend with my family or sometimes spend with my wife, et cetera. And so we recently, uh, prior to the pandemic, had a chance to, to get away for about a week. And we decided to totally splurge on this amazing place in St. Lucia uh, that was called Jade Mountain. And it's just like this kind of open air room that faces these like mountains that just kind of come right out of the water and stuff like that. And it was like the most beautiful, romantic place. And I find myself both, I looked forward to it before we did it for a long time, which was its own kind of like reward. But years later, I still kind of like look back on that when I have those those dark days where I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been working for 16 hours now. I can kind of go back and just visualize that one kind of like, you know, scene. And it's just really fantastic. That is so cool. And I've got to say, for everybody listening to the show, I so wish you were watching this on YouTube right now because the way Ben's face lit up in the smile he had from ear to ear (laughs) says that that was beyond the best memory and splurge ever. Awesome. Okay, so that was the four part of the four more. Now for the more part of the four more, tell our listeners where they can connect with you, where they can find out more about Prodify, where they can find out more about Build What Matters and where they can buy it, and where they can find out more about Whoop and, and Whoop's products. Yeah, sounds great. Let me do those in reverse order. So if you're interested in learning more about Whoop, it's really simple. Go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com. It's a subscription-based product. To learn more about Prodify, the website is prodify.group. That's P-R-O-D-I-F-Y dot group. Great information and resources available on the website there as well. Um, There's a lot of what we call library materials. So if you wanted examples of some of the templates of documents and things like that that might be helpful to be thinking through product things in a better way, uh, some great resources there. To reach out to me specifically, I usually think that LinkedIn is the best way. And so my handle on LinkedIn is really easy. Ben Foster, that's it. Connect with me there. I love to connect with other people and talk shop when it comes to product, et cetera. Just make sure that you include a little note, I would say, when you reach out, because I get a lot of other kind of like random people reaching out on LinkedIn these days trying to you know, sell me stuff. But I'd love to connect with people who just want to learn and, and share notes. Awesome. And Build What Matters, where can we pick it up? So the number one place to pick it up is definitely going to be Amazon. And if you just search uh, on Amazon for Build What Matters, it should be one of the first things that comes up. It's available in hardcover, paperback, and on Kindle. Awesome. Ben, this was an amazing conversation. Absolute wisdom for those of us who want to build amazing products and amazing product companies. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Ben. See you soon. 
I absolutely love that episode. Of course, I love talking about products. I'm a product guy. I've done product my entire career, so this was fun for me, but still some amazing, amazing tips there. I especially loved his Steve Jobs quote of innovation is saying no to a thousand things, and it's so true. If you want to be a great innovator, if you want to be a great business owner, it's almost more important to say no to things than to say yes to things. I completely agree. And that speaks so much to one of my favorite parts was when he started talking about product companies that over the years, after 10 or 20 years, they have the innovators dilemma and they keep layering more and more and more stuff on and it's just not relevant anymore. And then another product company can swoop in, bring back the basics in a bigger and better way. So I love the way he just gave those tips on what we should and shouldn't be doing in terms of building product. Absolutely. All right, let's wrap this up, baby. Everybody, once again, for the second or third week in a row, Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us this week on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. And we'll be back again next Tuesday and every Tuesday. So please join us again next week. She's Carol. I'm Jay. Now go out and build what matters today. Have a super week, everybody. Keep being your awesome rock star selves. See Thanks, you next everybody. week. Bye. Mm-hmm.